Before Marvel was the unstoppable behemoth that it is today, it was a comic book company entering bankruptcy. They also made a few films over the years, of varying quality. But after two decades of letting others railroad their characters, Marvel decided to take things into their own hands. But a fragile, unproven studio casting a star with a laundry list of addictions as a comic book hero few had ever heard of wasn't exactly a recipe for success. Iron Man in 2008 proved us all wrong. But that doesn't mean it was easy, and it could have doomed a cinematic universe before we even knew what that term meant. Welcome to the first episode of The Shit Show. Started in 1939, Marvel Comics would gradually become a household name. By the 60s, they were seeing the dawn of a new age in popularity and commercial success, thanks in large part to the genius of Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko. But when the late 80s rolled around, Marvel was making questionable business decisions that would soon cripple the company. One such example was their careless attempts at producing films based on their properties. Not counting the 15-part Captain America serial from 1944, the first ever movie based on a Marvel comic was Howard the Duck. Produced by George Lucas, the 1986 film was... Uh, a film? Sure, it was a huge flop. Things didn't fare much better with their direct-to-video adaptations of The Punisher in 1989, starring Dolph Lundgren, and Captain America a year later. They also buried Roger Corman's uber-cheap Fantastic Four in 1994. Even though they had success with their Fox Kids TV shows like X-Men and Spider-Man, Marvel couldn't keep up with the amount of money they were losing. Despite those badass theme songs. In August of 1996, they created Marvel Studios and began selling the film rights to all their characters to start making money again. 20th Century Fox bought the Fantastic Four and the X-Men, including any character falling under the label of Mutant. New Line Cinema took Blade and Iron Man, Universal Pictures grabbed the Hulk, and Sony purchased Spider-Man. Marvel barely made anything from selling these licenses. And in December, they declared bankruptcy. Enter a company by the name of Toy Biz, who maintained the master toy license for Marvel properties since 1990. Taking advantage of Marvel's financial troubles, Toy Biz owners billionaire Isaac Perlmutter and his business partner, Avi Arred, attempted to purchase Marvel Entertainment Group. After a lengthy court battle, the two companies merged, becoming Marvel Enterprises in 1998, putting Perlmutter at the top and Arred behind the wheel of Marvel Studios. At this point, their deals with film studios began to pay off. A bit. Stephen Norrington's Blade was released in 1998 and was a modest hit. A much bigger hit followed in 2000 with Brian Singer's X-Men, proving Marvel's properties weren't a fluke and helped kickstart the superhero film genre that continues today. Then in 2002, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man blew the lid off the potential of Marvel superheroes and with a sequel in 2004, the two films made over a billion dollars worldwide. Arad helped produce those films, but only had a limited control over the direction of the characters. Even though Spider-Man was a cash cow for Sony, Marvel reportedly only received about 60 million. Marvel's brand was skyrocketing, but they had little to show for it. Out of the blue, a man by the name of David Maisel contacted Arad in 2003 with a plan to turn things around. 
Maisel, who had dabbled back and forth in the film and tech industries with no real claims to fame, convinced Ared and the penny-pinching Perlmutter that Marvel should independently produce their own films. Take full control of production, stop letting movie studios butcher their IPs, and make all the monies. Perlmutter was so impressed by this pitch, he made Maisel president of Marvel Studios. Then Maisel proved his concept in 2004 by partnering with Lionsgate to produce eight direct-to-video animated films. Lo and behold, it worked, and Marvel kept half the profits. It was time to tackle live action. To fund a full-fledged production company, the infamously broke Marvel gambled big. They laid down the rights of 10 properties as collateral for a loan. It included Captain America, Nick Fury, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, and the Avengers. If this failed, Marvel would be an even bigger broken shell of messy licenses and crippling debt. Arad was made head of the studio, and he appointed a junior executive, Kevin Feige, as his second in command. Feige got his start as an assistant to producer Lauren Schuller Donner, working on Volcano and You've Got Mail. In 2000, as Donner took on the first X-Men movie, she knew of Feige's immense knowledge and passion for the world of Marvel and hired him as an assistant producer. From that point on, Feige worked as some form of a producer on every Marvel film, mainly giving script notes. Arad knew he was the perfect fit. Over those years, Feige hated Marvel's lack of control over their characters in the movies made so far, and working side-by-side -side with Maisel, the two of them discussed pie-in-the-sky possibilities of this new studio. I learned a lot working on other, other Marvel films at other studios up to that point. And when we got the chance to do it ourselves, it was, there was a lot of pressure involved because it was all on us. But I was very comfortable with that because if we were to fail, at least we would have failed with the best intentions. This is where the idea of a shared universe of films first began to take shape. What if each Marvel movie was a quasi-sequel or spin-off, with characters interweaving throughout, just like they do in the comics? We just wanted to replicate that, and have that as a unique aspect to the Marvel Studios films, which the other films up to that point, where each studio had only individual character rights, couldn't do. Now where to begin? Maisel and Feige needed to put together a roster of heroes that could make this dream a reality. But which hero should they start with? When Maisel first joined Marvel, he stopped negotiations to sell the film rights for Captain America and Thor. Feige lobbied hard for Captain America to be the first film, but it was decided Iron Man should be the starting point as he had never been depicted in live action before. Therefore, audiences wouldn't have any preconceived notions about him. It wasn't without a lack of trying. Universal tried to make one on the cheap in 1990. The rights eventually lapsed and 20th Century Fox picked them up in 1996. Then they sold it to New Line in 1999. The likes of Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, Quentin Tarantino, and Joss Whedon all floated by the project at some point. The Notebook director, Nick Cassavetes, came the closest in 2004, signing on to direct a script written by David Hayter of X-Men fame. Oh, who's also a voice actor on the side. What the hell are you talking about? After two years of false starts, New Line gave up and returned the rights to Marvel in November 2005, calling it a lousy property. Marvel didn't waste a second and announced that same month that Iron Man would be their first independent feature film with Paramount handling the distribution. Then the following February, 
Marvel picked up the rights to the Hulk. We'll get to that eventually. And just like that, Marvel had all the rights to the original 1963 Avengers lineup. Everything's coming up Millhouse! In April of 2006, Marvel Studios came out swinging, announcing films for Captain America, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and even Nick Fury. On top of that, Ant-Man, to be directed by Edgar Wright, and Jon Favreau as the director of Iron Man. Most mainstream press saw this as a list of B-tier superheroes, as they were hardly household names. But fans knew this was potentially an all-star lineup, if done right. Listen to the characters I named that we, that we work, are working on currently, and you put them all together, there's no coincidence that that may someday equal the Avengers. I think, uh, I think just having that, that possibility on the horizon is something that excites all of us. And Marvel was quick to let them know that the days of half-assed adaptations were over. Unless you buy into the gestalt of what is Marvel and understand the characters and metaphors and treat them as living people, we are not interested. This is material that has withstood the test of history, and the director and writers have to feel a sense of responsibility. With Wright and Favreau, Marvel was sending a message about how they will be thinking outside the box when it came to directors. Favreau had only made three films at that point. The indie film Made, the now Christmas classic Elf, and the Jumanji-like flop Zathura. He may not have been an obvious choice, but Feige saw a director who put characters first. The hope is to, to ground this thing in reality wherever we can because it's so superhuman. These heroes are so larger than life that any opportunity we could find to sort of screw it down to reality, we would be hard-pressed to, to make a movie without taking advantage of those opportunities that you would really feel something about. We really believed in having a character that was as interesting, if not more interesting, outside of the costume as he was in the costume. And, you know, Marvel Studios' Iron Man, that would be the marquee name, allowed us to say, let's just cast the best actor we can find. Speaking of which, that September, Robert Downey Jr. was cast as Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man. A casting choice that was truly surreal. You have to understand, today no one could possibly think of anyone else in that role, but then, whew! Sure, he was a dead ringer for Stark, but Downey was a liability. He had proven for decades that he was a beyond charismatic actor, earning multiple awards and nominations, but his substance and alcohol abuse was extremely public and worrisome. For years, he was constantly in and out of jail or rehab, and no studio would ensure any project he worked on. And this is who Feige and Favreau wanted to lead the charge of Marvel's enormous and expensive venture called the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I, I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I made, largely public. Sober since 2003, Downey made a comeback for the ages, proving himself to studios and filmmakers by making amends, always staying reliable, and signing contracts that would withhold a portion of his salary until the project was complete. And really, it was hard to argue why he wouldn't be perfect for the rich, quick-witted, alcoholic Tony Stark. The best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. The only time I've ever gone up to somebody at a restaurant was when I saw Kevin Feige after they announced Robert Downey Jr. just to say, Kevin, that was the dopest move ever. It explained 
everything about the movie that needed to be explained. Explained their intent, the, the integrity they had about which actors they were going for. And it was a real sea change once Kevin took over and he said, that's the first decision I got to make as the head of the studio. Rookie screenwriting duo Art Markham and Matt Holloway wrote the initial draft of Iron Man. And Children of Men writers Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby wrote another, both updating the comic from the Vietnam War to the current day war in Afghanistan. Favreau combined the two and had frequent Tim Burton collaborator John August give it an uncredited polish. After the script was complete, Feige ran it past multiple Marvel creatives and executives. Marvel Entertainment President Alan Fine, Marvel Studios co-president Louis D. Esposito, Marvel Comics President of Publishing Dan Buckley, Marvel's Chief Creative Officer Joe Quesada, and writer Brian Michael Bendis. This group unofficially became known as the Marvel Creative Committee. Their goal was to call out issues with current scripts and help ensure that they remained true to the comics. Their intention was pure, but they also would make things nearly impossible for any filmmaker who went through Marvel's walls, giving conflicting notes that could never be resolved. Their influence on the MCU was a monster in the making, one that Feige would have to wrestle with more and more as the studio grew. For Iron Man, the constant back and forth led to an unfocused script. In 2007, during pre-production, Favreau flew in various comic creators to give their honest feedback about the current script. In it, the Mandarin, Iron Man's arch-nemesis, was the main villain. But Civil War writer Mark Miller had some brutally honest comments that convinced Favreau that the Mandarin was too unrealistic to start with. You know, with his whole ten power rings made from a crashed alien spaceship. Oh, and he's also a racist caricature. Jeff Bridges' character, Obadiah Stane, was then moved up to the main antagonist. But even after all the input and rewrites, Bridges claimed the script still needed work. Two weeks before shooting. We thought the script needed a lot of work. We had two weeks of rehearsal and we met together and we really ironed the thing out quite well, we all thought. And then a day before uh, shooting, we get a message from the Marvel folks. They said, oh, no, 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 the script, you changed it all wrong. We said, oh my God, what are we going to do? Well, what we did is that we would often meet in my trailer before work for two or three hours trying to figure out what we're going to shoot that day. There was no script. You know, the crew would be in there tapping their foot waiting for us and we'd be in there, you know, playing each other's parts and improvising. You know, John would be calling writer friends of his. Downey would frequently call writer-director Shane Black to get ideas for better lines after they had both staged their comebacks in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Once filming got going in March of 2007, Favreau handled production with a confident, steady hand. He took a heavy improvisational style to shooting, and the cast and crew fell into a groove. You are making a $200 million student film. That's it. Just have fun. You know, you got John Favreau and Downey. They're so good, man. Relax and have fun. I said, oh, that's right. So that's what we did. We just jammed, had a great time. And I think it's up there on the, on the screen. And in that spirit, the film actually ends with an ad lib from Downey. Truth is, I am Iron Man. This one line changed how superhero movies could be made. Not only did it ditch decades of the secret identity trope, it broke from the comics in a way that stayed true to the character and allowed Marvel to take risks that fans could get behind. Mostly. You got a minute to live, Philip, with words. Just a roll? The Mandarin? See, it's not real. Favreau also wrestled with the amount of CGI audiences would believe. 
Eventually, he embraced it wholesale and nearly replaced all of Stan Winston's practical work. Lastly, Favreau was very intentional with adding Easter eggs throughout the film, topping it all off with an end credits tag, which would be a hallmark of Marvel movies. Secretly filmed with Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, who was like, seriously, fan casting 101, it teased a bigger universe that had only just begun. You think you're the only superhero in the world? Mr. Stark, you become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. In this controlled chaos, Favreau created the tone and style of the entire MCU going forward. The relatable characters, the snappy dialogue, fanciful technology, fun locations, big showdowns, and nothing too heavy. Is it start? Yet. I don't feel so good. Oh god. With a total cost of 140 million, Iron Man finished on time and under budget. Marvel, John Favreau, and Robert Downey Jr. had brought an amusement park to life. Wait, I, I didn't say that. Fueled by a rock and roll marketing campaign, the debut of a B-tier superhero on May 2nd, 2008, opened to a massive 98 million, the second biggest opening for a non-sequel. It topped out at a worldwide 585 million and hit 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Intelligent and thrilling, it also hosted a star-making performance that was nothing short of iconic. It goes without saying, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe may not have existed without Robert Downey Jr. I feel I'm talking to Tony Stark, I swear. Today, it seems insane to think of Downey as a gamble not worth taking, or Marvel Studios being a bankrupt also-ran, or Iron Man as an expensive, risky property, yet all of that was true. John Favreau navigated around every potential trap of failure and forged a franchise that changed cinema forever. It was the start of something truly special, and we had no idea how big it would become. Marvel's first shot as an independent studio was a smashing success. The rest is history. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about this episode, you can view my sources and citations in the show notes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon, all at It Was a Shit Show. But shit without the eye, because, you know, this is a family show, obviously. Thanks to Ryan Hudson from Channel 8 for our amazing theme music. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find all these episodes on our YouTube channel, Shit Show.